Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw, a roundtable-style spin-off from Adventure Rider Radio that we do each month about motorcycle travel in a panel-style discussion. On this episode of Raw, episode 60, we're going to be talking about unexpected and unusual maneuvers and don't mention this at the border crossing. All that and more coming up. This episode is supported by Fresh Tracks, facilitating adventurous conversations at freshtracks.co.uk. Before we get going today, though, I want to give a shout-out to some people that have helped the show incredibly this past month with support of $50 or more. Here we go. Elliot Metherell, David Swift, Stephen Howard, Greg Burgess. Thank you all very much. It means a great deal to us. And it's really what makes the show work. It's so great to have people that, that appreciate what we're doing and that help the show by supporting. If you're not doing it now, we would love to get your support. Anything $50 or more gets you a shout out on the show like you just heard me do, but you can support with any amount through our Patreon account. Drop by our website, adventureriderradio.com and click on support. Now, here we go. Episode 60. We're going to talk about some twisted things that you have to do to get your motorcycle through to the next location and how some simple things can get you snagged at border crossings. Here we go. Adventure Rider Radio Raw for January 2021. Recorded live from the Canoe West Media Studio, this is Adventure Rider Radio Raw, roundtable discussions about motorcycles, travel, and anything else that crosses our mind, completely unscripted, raw, and personal. My name is Jim Martin, and today at the virtual roundtable, afforded through the magic of the internet, I am joined by my esteemed Overland co-host. Now, before I do this, I want to point out that this is January 2021. It's uh, our 60th episode of Adventure Rider Radio Raw. Uh, incidentally, Adventure Rider Radio started back in 2014. We started Raw in 2016. In fact, it was January 2016 that we did our first episode of Raw. I'm sure you guys, many of you will remember this. So um, this episode being January 2021 marks five years of doing Raw every single month. Now, it's not an easy task, as we all know from doing it, recording Raw every month because we're, we're literally spread across the world. We live in several almost opposite time zones. There's been many times when, when um, some of us have had to start out early, very, very early, or go late into the night as we tried to match the, the times as best we could to record. And only rarely does somebody not make it, because I know there's lots of times when, um, well, I remember Sam booking hotel rooms while he was traveling and, and booking the hotel room just to make that recording. The Rickses, Brian and Shirley, you guys are, have been for, for a long time now, getting up really early just to make our recording time. I know that you've been traveling before where you've went and found Wi-Fi and a place to record. You've also put your guests on hold and kept everybody quiet while we've been <laughs> recording. Uh, keep everybody quiet in the background. Grant, uh, same thing. I know you're always busy with the hub meets and, and you've gone out of your way multiple times to find a recording place and... and um, and, and do travel, but like while you're traveling and, and doing other things, Graham Field as well. Several times I remember him rushing home just for the recording. He's recorded late into the night or, or found hotel rooms just to make the recording. I just want to say thank you for all of you for doing just like this incredible effort to record raw every month. I mean, it's really incredible to think that we've done this many episodes. So thank you. Yeah. You're very welcome. Yeah. Thanks, we, we wouldn't G. miss it because it's such yeah. fun. It's staggering to think we've done so many episodes. It is. It really is. It's, <laughs> and I, I said to me once before, I think it's a lot of hours we've actually sat and, and talked, you know, together in this group. 
But now after five years of Adventure Rider Radio Raw, we have our first change in co-hosts. As uh, as with all of us, we found ourselves in different time zones throughout the, the years. And lately, Graham, uh, or last year, uh, and, and even before that, Graham was finding he was recording at a later later time at night than he preferred. And although I, I know he grappled with it for a long time, he ultimately felt it was time to leave Raw near the end of last year. And of course, we're going to miss Graham on Raw because we had a lot of fun over the past five years with him. And there's on the back episodes, there, there's lots of Graham in there to listen to and a lot of the fun that we had over that time. Today, we have a new voice replacing Graham, someone with plenty of travel experience, uh, business experience, an author of a couple of of adventure motorcycle books, someone who's very plugged into the motorcycle scene, and that is Michelle Lampfair. Now, Michelle's been on Raw before, been on Adventure Rider Radio before as well. She is from South Dakota in the U.S. and uh, is our new co-host on Raw. So, Michelle, I'm going to start with you. Welcome to Adventure Rider Radio Raw. We're so pleased to have you with us. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. It's exciting. And and where are you right now? Well, I'm not in South Dakota at the moment. I'm a bit of a snowbird uh, this winter, so I'm actually calling in from Phoenix, Arizona. You there because the weather's better? Uh, yes, and that doesn't take a lot this time of year compared to South Dakota. <laughs> well, we have uh, Sam Manicom in the UK. Hello, Sam. Hey, how are you doing? Very well. So it's a it's a new year, 2021. I'm sure you've got your New Year's resolutions already down. New Year's resolutions? Hang on a minute. <laughs> Was I supposed to do one of those? Um, do you know, there's only one New Year's resolution that I've ever kept, and I'm sure I've mentioned it before, but my New Year's resolution was smile at somebody every day and make them smile back, and it was so much fun to do. But that is literally the only New Year's resolution that I've ever done. But I tell you what, Jim, it is very weird here at the moment. Here we are. It's not even the middle of January yet, and... It's 12 degrees Celsius. That's 54 degrees Fahrenheit outside. It is completely unreal. Normally, we should be down to sort of three, four, maybe five degrees if we're lucky. Um, Such a a strange winter. But um, hey, it's it's, um, nice for a change. I've only worn three layers today. (laughs) Well, speaking of warm weather, we also have Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks in Australia. Shirley and Brian, good morning. Good morning. It's it's going to be 37 here today. (laughs) Thanks, Cheryl. Wow. (laughs) Celsius. Celsius. That's over 100 in your temperatures. So, yep, it's lovely and sunny in the middle of summer. It's gorgeous here. Actually, it's not. It's too bloody hot, but there you go. Grizzle, grizzle, grizzle. Welcome, Michelle. You'll get used to me complaining about everything. (laughs) (laughs) I'll join you, I'm sure, too. (laughs) Shirley, you're down to single layers then, are you? Uh, just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's enough. Yesterday we spent most of the afternoon in the swimming pool. Just oh, thought no. we'd share that. Sorry. <laughs> so cool. And Grant Johnson is in British Columbia, Canada. Hello, Grant. Hi, everybody. Here we are doing okay for weather, but I've just been reading about the polar vortex that's coming. Apparently we've had a very mild winter, but that is going to change in the next week or so. Sam, be prepared. Uh, Grant, I kid you not, um, I don't know whether you guys have seen in, in the news, but Spain, which is much of which um, at lower altitude is, is normally very pleasant at this time of year, yeah. they've been having 
full on blizzards and meters yeah. of snow and it's it's quite incredible i feel really sorry for the people there because many of them don't have any heating at all can you yeah. imagine what that must be like yes i lived in australia for a while <clears throat> we had an apartment it was a two-bedroom apartment because we needed an office and there was one heater for the whole apartment and it was i don't know about 10 inches wide 18 inches high and it put out enough heat that you could tell that it was on and that was it that's well, a safety we heater. don't get cold so you don't burn yeah, yourself. Sure, Melbourne does. <laughs> oh, absolutely, Melbourne does. We have heating here. Don't you worry about that. <laughs> that was an interesting experience anyway. Different ideas. And I always remember walking down a street in Melbourne and shortly after we got there, and it was dead winter. I was freezing cold and had one of my nice warm winter jackets on, and a postie went by in shorts and a T-shirt. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, welcome to Australia. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that's the only uniform he's got <laughs> or if he just was warm <laughs> or just tough. I think the standing no joke for us was uh, everybody in Australia said, well, you're Canadian. You must you, – how can you possibly be cold? They said, hey, we understand how to turn the heat up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were traveling along the ten uh, – the Tenamite track um, one time and a, um, and we'd had a breakdown and we're getting fixed. And there was a truck driver who'd run off the road on this dirt track, which is the Tenamite, and broken his steering. And we took some um, provisions out for him before he could get fixed, uh, which you do out there because it's quite dangerous. And we come across this guy. He's got a pair of um, stubby little shorts on, a singlet, a pair of thongs, and the temperature out in the desert drops to zero. So, so I don't know how he's going to survive out there. Oh, no sense, no feeling. Yeah, That's all but, I have you know, to say, we, really. We gave him a blanket and a few other bits and pieces. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to share a real Australian story with you. Um, for something completely different, Brian was out riding and <laughs> I went outside and my cat went, meow, meow, look, look what I've got. And he had an eastern brown snake. One of the most dangerous snakes in Australia, like we have heaps of dangerous snakes and this is about number two. I growled at him so he picked it up by the head and ran down the driveway with it. <laughs> with me chasing him and screaming like a banshee, I finally got him to, to drop it and he then spent two days in the vet making sure that he hadn't actually been bitten by the snake. So all you people sitting there in your snowy cool environments just be grateful you don't have to deal with crap like that because it really ruined my day oh, wow. wow you'd think if your cat was an australian cat it would know better why would it bite a deadly snake like that absolutely oh, hang on a minute he's smart enough not to get bitten yeah, yeah that's true well. well well really you could read it in a story another way the, the cat just saved your life it knew exactly what it was doing is taking the snake and getting rid of it <laughs> okay, Jim, I'm going with that one. Thank you. Well, yeah, too. Right. I like that. Too. I've said all along, cats are great because if there's one around, they'll find it. And uh, nine times out of ten, they'll get rid of it for you. So I've no problem with that. But anyway, Cheryl's not too happy with that, Tommy. Well, our first segment for today is I didn't think my bike would make it. 
stories of unusual things that motorcycle travelers find themselves doing with their motorcycles to get to the next chunk of land or continent to continue the adventure. And I think this is going to be, this is going to be fun. Now, um, I guess you can imagine the obvious planes, ships, ferries. Those are the stories I think that, um, that sort of end up standing the test of time. The stories that get repeated, you know, those, I guess any of the horror stories, really any of the stories where things go wrong, they're the most interesting. I shouldn't say horror stories, but so let's begin with with big crossings. Uh, I think it's probably sensible to start with the big stuff and then move to the smaller stuff like the bridges and trails and things like that. Shipping across oceans or maybe flights, those sorts of things. Sam, what was your, um, let's say, first challenge in getting your bike somewhere, like as, as far as having to ship it somewhere? Your first hurdle you had to overcome as far as dealing with getting your bike across something big. When I set off on um, the big trip, which was only supposed to be that first year, of course, uh, getting from mainland Europe down into Africa was relatively easy, whereas a lot of people now have real problems getting from um, Greece and Italy down into Egypt. Um, Back then, it was an absolute doddle. So my first big challenge was getting from um, South Africa across to Australia. And I hadn't planned to do this. Um, I was only going to go the length of Africa. But when I got down to the bottom, I thought, stuff it, I'm not going home. There is no good reason to go home. I might as well continue. So then it was a case of, well, how on earth can I afford to do this? And what's going to be an adventure? What's going to be something that I've never done before? Well, of course, there were loads of opportunities for that, weren't they? But I didn't want the immediacy of flying. And the thought in my mind was, well, you know, it's going to be expensive to fly anyway. So I actually managed to get myself and the bike on a cargo ship to go from Durban in South um, South Africa across to Sydney. And that was um, an absolutely wonderful experience. Um, But actually, I'm, I'm afraid to say it was incredibly easy to do. Sorry. <laughs> oh, you're saying there's no story. You started to tell a story and then you're telling us there's no story. <laughs> no, exactly. I mean, it's really bad. Um, I'm sorry. They're transcontinental or, you know, transocean uh, trips and things like that have mostly been a case of being relatively straightforward. Having said that, there have been other times where um, sheer stupidity or over-optimism on my part um, have uh, have dropped me in it to a certain extent. Is and that the same thing? Me, Sorry, Sam, to interrupt you. Is that the same thing? Stupidity and over optimism. <laughs> um, I can tell you a story about um, taking my bike uh, on a on a lake, Lake Malawi in Africa. If that will fit. Um, I've been wild camping down on a beach. It's called Chikali Bay. And anybody who's traveled through Malawi will almost certainly know this bay. uh, I was there with a bunch of really good fun backpackers and it was quite beautiful. We laughed a lot and um, they all had great tales of the road to swap and so on. And after a few days, um, some of the guys started talking about catching the ferry down Lake Malawi um, from the nearby port of Inkata Bay to Monkey Bay. And we'd all heard great things about this voyage from other travelers. And I was thinking, oh, dear, what a shame. You know, we're going to split up this group. They're, they're such a brilliant, fun bunch of people. But then I heard a rumor that although this was a passenger ferry, it would take motorcycles. So I thought, right, a new adventure begins. So down to the port with the bike, and their eyes nearly popped out of their heads when they saw the size of Libby because, of course, the rumors that I'd heard were little 125cc jobs <laughs> and not an 800cc BMW. The port manager was brilliant. 
he was obviously on the make and he was insisting that there was no way to get my bike on board in such a way that you knew that if I'd crossed his palm with silver, that would have been no problem at all. His his job would have been done. But I did manage to get to see the captain, who was a real character, a short guy, pitch black skin, and the, the roundest pot belly that I've ever seen. I tell you what, it made him look absolutely pregnant, about nine months worth. <laughs> But he, his, this guy was such a character. He just looked at me, looked at the bike and said, if you can get it on, you can come. You'll need to find your own helpers and you're going to need them. And I tell you, I've never forgotten what it was like standing on this wooden jetty. It's all splintered wood from the sunshine and bleached wood and the noise, the hustle and bustle of the people rushing around and everything. And I'm looking at the ferry and thinking, jeepers, is this a good idea? Now, I don't know if, you've, if you guys have um, all seen... Um, Humphrey Bogart's movie, The African Queen. It's a sort of really battered, beaten up boat covered in layers of peeling paint and all of this sort of stuff. Well, that is exactly what this ferry looked like. And I should have changed my mind at that point. But this is where youthful op- enthusiasm and optimism got me into trouble, almost. Six of us carried the bike up the gangplank And then we started what was just like a snakes and ladders game along the gangways and up and down metal stairs and all this sort of stuff. And a lot of the time, we actually had to lift the bike above metal railing level um, and twist it so the handlebars and the cylinders would make it through. And there were big pipes that were coming out into the walkways and all this sort of stuff. So six of us were really needed to carry the bike. Um, We eventually made it to the after deck, which is where I'd been told um, we could put it. And what made this particular journey um, entertaining was that two of the guys were stoned out of their trees. Malawi has excellent grass. And so these guys were just laughing and giggling all the way, which turned into total entertainment, not only for us, but also for the locals. It was almost like the world had stopped as people were watching us thread our way through the outside of this boat. Once we'd got it on, then I had to go and pay for it. And usually cargo on the on the ship was paid for by weight. And Libby and my luggage by that time weighed about 290 kilos, which is about 50 kilos less than I'd actually started the trip with. The cost wasn't that much, but the cargo ticket officer just winked at me and he said, Mr, we will put your motorcycle on the manifest at half of that. You will pay me the full amount and we will split the difference. Just brilliant. I couldn't believe it was happening to me because you know you hear about this stuff happening and you see it happening in movies. And that was me standing there with this happening. But the the voyage itself, um, that was an adventure. We had engine problems, middle of the lake, and so we were sort of hanging around. The, one of the engines died and the other one had steering problems. So we were literally going around in circles for a while. But this boat was so big... You couldn't get it in um, to the shore, uh, to a lot of the little villages. And so the the ship would just sort of um, pull to a standstill and dugout canoes would swarm out from the shores, um, out to the boat, and then they would head back to the shore loaded up with bicycles and goats and stems of bananas and sacks of pineapples and all of that sort of thing. And I just remember the shouts and the fear. And the fear came mostly from um, the people because... Many of them couldn't swim. And this was huge waves. And these dugout canoes were just bobbing up and down madly. Now, did I learn anything from this? Well, yeah, sometimes even if an option sounds mad, it can lead to the best experiences. And I, that's one of the reasons that I love travel. And the other one is that 
everybody helps everybody else. And that was a real joint everybody helping each other um, situation. And I know if we, if the guys and I hadn't managed to get the bike ourselves, there would have been one of the local guys who would have volunteered to help us carry it through. So, yeah, that's why we go traveling, isn't it? For the mad experiences. Wow, that's, uh, that's quite a story. So you're, you ended up lowering your, your bike down into a canoe and haven't paddled to shore? No way. No, not a chance. Um, the size of those dugout canoes, um, my bike would have definitely sunk them. No, at the other end, it was it was relatively easy. Um, I waited until everybody else had got their, um, their cargoes off the boat. It was the sort of terminal turnaround point. And then getting the bike back through the corridors and so on was an awful lot easier. Um, but um, the gangplank to get the bike off which was only about two foot wide, not a problem, but it stopped a yard off the ground. So for the first time, I had to jump my bike for a yard, and at least I had the common sense to do that without the luggage loaded back on again. Um, I felt quite pleased that I stayed upright, having done that. <laughs> you mean that's because the tide was in? Like, How did you get back on to go back? Oh, well, no, I, I rode on. Um, we stayed in Monkey Bay um, as, as a group um, for another week. It's just one of those fantastic backpackery type places where um, time stands still and there's lots to do. Um, but I spent most of the time brain picking with other travellers that were coming north um, as to road conditions and what border crossings were like. And it was one of those crossroads of the road. So it was a, a really good place to hang out. Um, yeah, good fun people. Nice spot. Sam, you mentioned the first one you were talking about getting on the ship and you said it was relatively easy and there was no story there. That's something that you can't really do now because you, you, you sort of got on as a, like you worked at a deal direct, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Um, and it, it was a it was a fairly elongated deal because I, of course, I had that 17 bone fracture accident um, between booking the ship and supposed to be meeting it. And the shipping company were absolutely amazing because I had to keep getting in touch with them uh, to begin with because I went for the six weeks and um, went into hospital to get checked up. And they said, oh, well, you know, you've been fixed in the wrong places. We're going to have to break those bones and start all over again. So, you know, that just rolled on for another section. And each time something went wrong, um, I was in touch with the shipping company and they very graciously said, well, you know, we'll, we'll put you on the next ship. And sometimes that was a, another six weeks away. So it worked perfectly. But what a wonderful way to get from one continent to the other. These these cargo ships, some of them take passengers. And I, I kind of got the feeling that we were there as entertainment um, for the crew, you know, just something to break the monotony, new conversations coming aboard and that sort of thing. Um but um, they, they made me laugh because they said, um, oh, you must use our library. And I said, oh, great. Thank you very much. So I burned through the books that I bought on board with me, went down to the library to find out that it was 600 dirty DVDs. And that was it. <laughs> Shirley and uh, I guess maybe Shirley and Brian together. How about you guys? I'm just shaking my head about the library on that show. <laughs> I was trying to ignore it. <laughs> we're, we're just so lucky. We've never done anything quite as crazy as Sam, but we did take the bike across um, from La Paz to Copacabana in um, Bolivia. And you actually had to be very careful where you put the tyres of the bike and you couldn't put the side stand down because either side of where the tire, the space of wood where the tires went was um, gaps, so you could see the water. Gaps big enough that if you put the bike on them, they would have fallen through. Mm. Uh, certainly, it would not be 
seaworthy anywhere else, but there was already a school bus on it on this little ferry. So it was um, it was a different trip, but at least we were able to ride on and off with just a little assistance from people to make sure the bike managed to make it over these tiny weeny little gaps. But that's our, but probably well, our worst water one. Yeah. Oh, the, oh, the water ones, um, oh, oh, well, the, the flying from Singapore to Darwin, we, we're um, – <laughs> You, um, I didn't think we were going to make it to the bloody airport. We, we uh, decided to fly the bike. And um, I said to Cheryl, and I think I've told this story before, but we didn't want to run out of fuel, but you have to have less fuel when you when you um, uh, transport the bike by air. So um, we get on the freeway to head to the airport, and I know the freeway, and this is in the days of no GPS, and she'll said, yep, we're on the right freeway, but we're going um, the wrong way. Just a minor, minor, minor problem. And I'd with run the fuel right down. And so we, we, it took us about 10 or 15 kilometres to find an exit to get off and go back on to get to the airport. And when we got to the airport, um, we pulled into the, the freight terminal and there's people there waiting with buckets to empty your fuel into the bucket so they can get it because they know you can't use it. I took the tank off, tipped the fuel tank upside down into to put the fuel in the bucket and nothing came out. So, wow. <laughs> so that was that was close. And then when they we go to load the bike on the plane, they have, you know, those um, the containers you see, the aluminium containers that they they take all the food stuffs and all the, the um, uh, freight out onto planes. Well, that's what they put the bike in, and they insisted that the bike be laid down on its side, and I was just as insistent that it should not be laid down on its side. So there was a little tape to tape over that, and we ended up strapping it down um, fr- uh, on its on its wheels um, with less pe- uh, uh, air in the tyres. And, of course, there was the one when we flew it from Nepal to Thailand where we had to let the air out of the tyres and the same thing happens, you know, when you're getting you, – the bike comes out and everyone's there watching you and you you pull the crate apart and everyone wanted the wooden crate for their firewood, so I just handed that out to whoever was around. But there's nowhere to pump the tyres up. And this is a salutary lesson for anyone taking a bike by air. Have somewhere to pump your damn tyres up because I then had to ride the bike – about five kilometres on the edge of the freeway with flat tyres to get somewhere where I could pump the tyres up. And we also discovered that in Thailand they have petrol stations and they have air stations and never the twain shall meet. They're different. <laughs> so we pulled up at a petrol station expecting to be able to get um, air, but, of course, that didn't actually happen. And what about the um, – we put the bike on a ferry in Athens to go out to Crete, and that's a, that's a fair – um, bit of uh, water you go across there and I rode the bike into the um, the cargo hold of the, the ferry and uh, thinking I'll strap it down. No, they didn't strap it down. They had like things you tie, uh, tie hay bales up with that twine. That was tied to the overhead pipes um, that ran there. So the bike was on its centre stand. Sort of it looked like a, a puppet with strings attached to it that was hung up by its handlebars and the, the back end by hay bale. And as we're crashing through this, the waves were up a little bit. I'm thinking, oh, Jesus, the bike will be sliding around in the in the, ba- in the, the back. 
what you, what you got to do, and Sam learnt the lesson with his trip, the locals, despite the look, do know what they're doing. Yep. You just have to have faith that that they, they are actually right, that the hay bale yeah. twine did keep our bike safe and that Sam's bike made it across uh, all those dramatic What about, what about the, ferry, uh, the ferry in on the Tigris River in yeah, Turkey? Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they knew what they were doing. We didn't yeah. fall off the back. Yeah, like you said, you know, you get onto this ferry to cross the Tigris River, which was quite wide down near, near Syria, and um, every, everyone else got on and then they they motioned for me to come on, but there was no room. So I'm actually balanced on the ramp of the ferry and they just lifted it about a foot off the water. So as it gets forward motion, I had to sit on the bike with water coming up through the, um, the ramp. Um, and I, I couldn't turn it around, I'm facing onto the ferry so that I've got this water around my feet for about, I don't know, 10 minutes as we're crossing this this river. But I couldn't turn it around. So I had to get people to help push me and turn me around so I could ride it off. But really, they, um, that's about it. Oh, uh, hang on. That'll do. That'll do. There's others. <laughs> Brian, Shirley and I, uh, Birgit and I went on a, um, a ferry across the, um, the river in Mombasa in Kenya. And we were just gobsmacked. They loaded so many vehicles and so many people on this ferry. The cargo deck, um, the vehicle deck, was underwater. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah <laughs> it surprised me. They, they, they push it to the limit. There was one, The other one I was going to say was about um, Nepal. When we, 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 just, we went off the, the road into a little village to go trekking through the jungle, and um, we went into this little village and um, the, the place we were staying is it had a moat around it um, and we couldn't work out why. And there was three wooden uh, tree trunks to walk across this moat. And uh, the gentleman there said, oh, you better bring the bike over that. And I thought, oh, okay. So that was a bit exciting, riding it across three logs, across this oh, about 12 or 15 feet of um, moat. And then um, we got it over there and um, they said, oh, you better put the bike up on the veranda. I said, why? I said, well, we have um, rhinoceros that come through here and uh, my rhinoceros might want to mate with your motorcycle. So, <laughs> so, so, so we, we manhandled the bike up onto the, the, um, the veranda, didn't we? And that night... A rhino came through the village, uh, somehow got across this moat, and um, but brushed past one of the walls of the houses, didn't it? The, the and mud, took the corner brick, out. And took the, the corner out of this mud brick house. But I should say that to get to all of that high drama, we had to do a, a, a crossing of a, a stretch of water that Brian didn't know how deep it was, so he got me to walk across it. Yeah, that's, that's true. <laughs> the human dipstick. Yep, thank you very much, Brad. <laughs> that's, that's um, yeah, you say that to, 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 to Susan Grant. Hey, I, I have been the dipstick myself. <laughs> Susan was smart enough to say, no, I am not going to check out the depth of that water. You are. I'll hold your boots. I mean, it's the same in the States. That was the one that was up to my chest. But, um, a ditch stick in English slang is an idiot. Yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
worry, don't worry. I'm noting all this down. Your, your yep. time will come when you least expect it. <laughs> we know. <laughs> How about you, Michelle? Oh, gosh, I've had a few water crossings that have been interesting for sure. Um, but I think the one that really comes to mind for me was the crossing um, after riding south on um, my KLR through Latin America. So heading through Mexico, all of the countries in Central America, and then having to find my way around the Darien Gap. And most people at the time were flying bikes because there wasn't a ferry and that ferry system has been on and off again. Um, but one thing, one way of getting across the Darien Gap or around it that's been around for a number of years is the stall rat. So I took the stall rat, made arrangements and booked it about three weeks in advance. Um, so knew when, when and where I had to be, but didn't realize really, I, I don't think I really had taken the time to think about what that was actually going to look like sailing your your bike on the deck of a sail ship across uh, the corner of the Caribbean from Panama to Colombia. So I rode out with a group of friends. There were about a dozen of us that took our bikes on, on the uh, stall rat on that particular crossing going from Panama to Cartagena, Colombia. And we rode out of Panama city. You have to go out of the city. It's a well, three or four hour ride out of the city to the end of the road at Carti. And you cross um, a privately owned section of land that's owned by a tribe, the Kuna tribe. And the stall rat takes you for about a four or five day cruise on the Caribbean. And you stop off at this tiny little island and have this kind of um, almost like a castaway experience. You can swim off of the uh, deck of the boat. You can swim out to this island. It's turquoise. It's tropical. It's It's stunning. But before you do that, before you get to have that experience, you have to get your bike onto the deck of the ship. Mm -hmm. So we, we rode out to Carty, the dozen of us, and we got stopped um, about halfway out in a protest. And that, that's very common in Latin America, a lot of blockades and protests. And, and um, this particular one lasted a couple of hours. And I remember thinking at the time, we're going to miss the boat. And they don't do this again for another couple of months. I, I don't know what to do. But then realizing that almost every other bike that was going on the crossing was stuck on the same side of the protest as me. So just started to relax and figure out, you know, it, it'll go when it goes and there's really nothing to be done about it. But eventually the um, blockade kind of cleared out and we hurried along on uh, the highway and then turned off to this kind of uh, rocky jungle path that ran out onto the Kuna land and then eventually you get out of the jungle and out onto the Caribbean side of the coast and you're riding along on sand roads and out to the small village called Carti. And at Carti, we rode out onto a long wooden pier out over the water and the boat was anchored out in kind of this harbor but then made its way over to the pier and off uh, from the boat hops the captain, Ludwig. And Ludwig, I'm sure... For anybody that's heard stories about the stall rat, he's, he's quite a character and anyone who's met him does not forget him. He's just a flurry of activity and he's got a, a half dozen crew and deckhands that hop off the boat with him. And he's running around, you know, just, you know, hither and thither. And, and um, he's got a handful, a half a dozen of these um, big, thick sizal ropes that are all frayed and hairy looking because they've been well used. 
and he's carrying them from bike to bike and he quickly throws a loop around your handlebars and another one around the uh, back of the bike. We pop all the panniers off and um, he hollers at a deckhand and they throw a large rope up over the mast of the ship and then toss the end of it over to the pier. Well, the boat is probably 10 or 15 feet away from this jetty that's out over the water. And they've created a boom by throwing this rope up over the mast and then down the other side to the deckhand. So I'm watching this whole process. It takes really not even five minutes and not realizing what's going on until all of a sudden I see my bike lift off of the end of the jetty and swing out over the water towards the boat. And, you know, obviously they've done this, as Shirley says, the the locals and, and the people that have done this, they know what they're doing. But to see your bike, which is really not just a mode of transportation, but it's my home. It's been my home at that point for a year. And it's going to be, I hope, (laughs) at that point for another year. And um, to see it swing out over the water and then, you know, kind of bob around back and forth and the guys wrestle it and try and lift it a little higher. And the the mast looks really, you know, pencil thin. I'm afraid the wood's going to snap. My bike is you know, too heavy or something's going to slip and it's going to wind up in the drink. But they uh, managed it very skillfully and, and tugged and pulled and finally lifted it up over the uh, the edge of the deck of the ship and onto the deck. And then they tie it um, in place and, and cover it with a bit of plastic and continue the process for another dozen bikes and arranged, I think all told, I think there were 15 bikes on the deck and they're just out in the open for the five days that you're on the boat. And we made our way out into the Caribbean and eventually across to the other side and and reversed the process on the other side in Cartagena, which was equally as as stressful (laughs) watching your bike um, be wrestled onto a raft to be taken into a port. But yeah, it, it was kind of, you know, It was all manpower and something I hadn't experienced before, seeing a bike just be wrestled into um, the deck of a ship and carried off. And I I was very glad that it all turned out okay. It was (laughs) quite the experience. We were going to do that trip too, Michelle, but he was doing a side trip to Cuba. Cuba. So so we ended up, because of time um, constraints, we ended up flying across the Darien Gap from... um, Bogota to Panama City. But having listened to that, I don't know that I could have coped with the stress, really. (laughs) (laughs) What was the crossing like, Michelle? You know, the crossing was relatively smooth. Like I said, you you stop off at the Sandblast Islands, and I think we were there for a couple of nights, and you you have the option of of having dinner with the Kuna tribe, and they do some dancing and some... um, you know, fresh cooked traditional Kuna food. It was, it was incredible to, you know, be out in the islands, be in the turquoise water, meet some locals. And and I think most of all, what I remember about that crossing was the other riders that I met, because at that point you're all heading the same direction. And in our case, we were all heading South and I made, you know, friends with a dozen to 15 people that I kept in contact with. And the majority I still keep in contact with, so it was just a great way to, you know, kind of land in a new land, land on the new continent with a handful of friends and maybe even some loose plans to meet up somewhere down the road. And uh, yeah, it, it just was the whole experience other than loading and unloading of my bike <laughs> was fantastic. You got to wonder. That sounds brilliant. 
you got to wonder if they've ever dropped one. <laughs> I didn't want to ask, so I, I never did. <laughs> How about Grant? What do you got, Grant? Oh, I've had a few air, sea, et cetera, trips. Um, generally been pretty good. Not too much of an issue. Um, one annoying one was we flew our bike to New Zealand from Canada and thought, great, we'll be there. We've got three months. Susan was going to start a job in Australia where we were immigrating to. And we've got three months to do New Zealand. Terrific. We'll ride in, fly in, pick up the bike, and we'll be out and we'll get start getting going. Only there was a dock strike when we got there. It was three weeks before we got the bike out. So we caught up on a bunch of stuff. I went down every day to the docks. See, how's it going? How's it going? And I, I brought a few <clears throat> bribes. Yeah, I, I'll have to use the word bribes to um, make sure that we were first off, first out to make sure everybody was happy and they knew who we were and how desperate we were and all the rest of it. And it turned out that we did get the first box out of the dock strike. The uh, guy that was running the docks uh, called me up and he said, your bike's out. Come on down. First out. And we were down there like 20 minutes later, loaded up the bike and we were gone. That was that was so frustrating. And I think it illustrates that you just can't plan on anything. I mean, one of the advantages of flying by air is that you can generally get the bike out within a day at worst and off you go. Whereas by sea, the bike can sit there for a week or two while they get everything sorted out and unloaded and go through customs and all the rest of it. The thing with uh, that, Grant, is they do not want cargo hanging around the airport. Absolutely. They, they don't. want they it gone. So even sometimes you've got to look at time as a factor in the cost effectiveness of freight. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yep, that's why by air, I generally recommend for travelers doing big trips to fly by air. Um, sometimes C is cheaper, but sometimes it's not because by the time you pay all the ridiculous port fees, I remember yeah. a guy telling me once that he worked on the Vancouver docks and he says, yeah, when a, when a shipment comes in, we charge X to move the container from point off the ship to the ground. Then we charge something else to move the container from there to where it's supposed to be parked. Then we decide that we don't like it there, so we're going to move it somewhere else, and we charge for that. Then we charge to open the door so that we can get stuff out. And then we decide, no, this is not a good place to unload, so we move the container and charge for that. Then we start taking out the boxes one at a time, and we charge for every box. Mm. And on yeah. and on and on it goes. Grant, you're making me think lot. about me trying to get my bike from Penang Island across to India. And uh -huh. I've been on the road for about. <laughs> There's a story here. Oh yes. <laughs> now I didn't. I was I was really tight for money for a lot of the trip, and so I was doing bits and pieces of work on the way to to keep me going from one place to the next. And so when the opportunity came up to get on an onion cargo ship to go from Penang Island across to Madras in India, as it was then, um, I, I just leapt at it because I'd heard so many good stories about um, getting across there. There used to actually be a, a ferry, um, but that had burnt down um, a very short period of time before I got there. Um, the, um, the passengers would um, have primus stoves and cook their own food up on the deck and so on. And um, the story goes that somebody knocked Primus stove over and that was that. The, the ship was was a goner. But anyway, so this onion cargo ship came up and I had the opportunity to get on with it. 
But um, I'd slipped a couple of discs in my lower back um, a few months before and I just got everything ticking along nicely and I fell through some slats on a bunk bed. So I missed the opportunity to get on this Onion cargo ship and my heart just sank because the only other alternative was to pay for it to go um, by cargo ship. Um, flying was just stupid money. Um, and uh, I had a sheer stroke of luck and um, the bike got taken to um, Singapore um, and then put on another ship from Singapore to Madras. And then the, the fun really started. I could see my container from outside of the port railings. But could I get it out of there? <laughs> um, sheer bad luck. Um, on one end of the row that this that the container had been put into, you know these big gantries that they pick up containers with and they shift them around a port. Uh, one of these things had broken down on one end, and then on the other end, not long after my container had been plonked into this row, the ground collapsed. Um, it was hollow straight down to the ocean, and so there I was, completely scuppered with my with my bike stuck in this. Ended up um, having to. Um, forge documents to get in to see the port captain but um, yeah that's a long story so I'll, I'll save it for another time all of sam's stories begin with broken bones <laughs> <laughs> funny that isn't I it have, surely i have a magnetic personality the only thing is i attract to disasters <laughs> did you say you fell through the slats of a bunk bed <laughs> I did. So was that well, a, um, was it a hospital visit? Yeah. Well, no, I managed without. I'd, I'd learned enough by this time how to to deal with these two slip discs, and it really was an awful lot of walking and physiotherapy exercises and time and painkillers. Um, and my back was actually feeling fine for the first time in months. So right the way through Malaysia and Thailand and back down through Thailand, um, it had been hurting. Um, but just getting on with it and walking a lot and shorter days riding and, you know, all of this sort of stuff. So treating it well. So I just happened to end up being in, in the top bunk bed. There were, the lower bunks had all been taken. And uh, just one day I was leaning on my elbow in this top bunk, chatting to an Auss Aussie guy, funnily enough. He'd, um, he was on his way to India um, to buy an Enfield, which he was then going to spend six months uh, riding around India on. And we were just talking about um, what it was like there. He'd, he'd been a backpacker in India before, and so had I. So we were um, full-on story swapping. And, um, yeah, a couple of the slats underneath me just went... <laughs> And that was it. So I went straight through first, down to the bottom bunk. I tell you, Did you hurt the Australian? He had the good sense not to be sitting underneath. <laughs> I like how Shirley's worried about her countrymen, not you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> we don't worry about I'm Sam anymore. Together, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How about um, how about smaller ones? like, you know, bridges. Has anybody went across one of those bridges? You know, you, you see them every now and then you'll see a video. I just saw one recently. Maybe it was on, uh, maybe it was on Instagram, but there's a, a huge river and then there's a spindly little bridge going across, you know, with the slats spaced apart and it's a cable bridge, like a suspension bridge. And then you see somebody ride a motorcycle across it. It's obviously a drone shot. It was quite nice. Anyone rode one of those? Uh, never we did one in um, Vietnam, but uh, I think that's a screenshot on my Facebook page at the moment, um, which is a bamboo bridge. Um, 
But and look, it was okay. It moved around a bit, but the problem was I had Shu on the back. Most of the other guys were it was solo, and I said to the her, problem "Do was... not move." <laughs> and she said, "Oh, I'll take a photo as we're going across this bridge. Don't move sideways." Um, but we made it over. Um, that's about the only one that we've I had trouble with the bridge, wasn't it? And I've been told so often, "Don't, don't move." move. <laughs> Brian, is it, uh, you are so lucky that Shirley always does as she's told. Oh, <laughs> just stirring it up. Yeah, I know oh, it's terrible, isn't it? The only time Susan does what she's told is when I tell her something on the back of the bike. I always remember one spot we were in um, Namibia in the Caprivi Strip riding along and there's long stretches of really good ground, so you can get going at a fairly good speed. But then it gets some really bad stutter bumps, or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and the only way you can ride them is like 50 miles an hour, 80 kilometers an hour. Anything slower and you just get beat to death and anything faster, it's like there's no way you're going to survive this. So you're kind of kissing the tops. And, and then we hit a huge sand wash. So if you imagine 50 miles an hour on a heavily loaded two-up, giant soft sand wash and the bike's just kind of going squirm wiggles twitch trying to keep it straight and susan said what's 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 what are you doing what are you doing i said shut up i'm busy <laughs> and she did <laughs> uh Su susan's gone to work hasn't she she's not hearing this uh she can probably hear me yes uh, work by the way is about six feet from me ah <laughs> uh, right i'm just wondering if she could tell the the fear in your voice Oh yeah, I think she probably got the message from, yeah. the, from the voice. Yes, I mean this was, this was a, a serious holy shit moment. Yeah. Well, at least you didn't end up lying half a dozen in the sand, and then it would have been a real holy shit. Yeah, moment. that's bulldust. Oh, yeah. We call it we call it bulldust over here. You can't yeah. see it. It's just it's just uh, like the exactly what you're riding on, and all of a sudden it's just powder. Yep, exactly what and this was. Big holes the whole width of the road, and they just swallow you up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fortunately, that for anybody thinking about riding the Caprivi Strip, it's now paved. But there's and no adventure that anymore. That <laughs> is a real a shame. shame, isn't it, Grant? That was such yes, a fantastic road. And yes, I know that was the one that I got my 17 bones broken on. Is it? That was well, a fantastic exactly road. Talking about. <laughs> it was absolutely fantastic. I mean, this this road had so many scare stories and Chinese whispers about it. You could write a book just about that road and all of the yep. experiences that people had had across it. And most of the Chinese whispers were completely wrong. Yeah, okay, it was a challenging road. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, you just heard what Grant said. Some, a lot of it, you can just scoot along at a, at, a, at a very comfortable pace. And some of it has really hellish corrugations. And some of it is just really horrible, squidgy stand. And, of course, there are a fair few potholes. And, of course, I discovered one of those. But, yeah, what a fantastic, fantastic road. Too many of these brilliant, mythical, historical, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, Bad, dangerous, Challenging. Challenging. <laughs> iconic. Yeah, exactly. Um, they're they're being asphalted over. The one from um, the border between um, uh, Ethiopia and down into Marzabit in Kenya. That's been asphalted now, and that mm -hmm. was one of the great challenges of the time. Yeah. A lot of people say well, Route Forty shouldn't be paved. Yeah, I think Route Forty is being paved now, isn't it? But yeah. that's still a challenging Not road if you can deal yeah. with the winds. 
Mm. Yeah, it's cut across. It. It's still got a lot of challenges to it, even though it'd be tarmac now. Yeah. And hey, it's, who are we to be talking about something like this when for the locals it must be absolute bliss not to have to take their goods to market or their cousin to hospital or whatever along the, or the crazy roads. Or the crazy Englishman who's broken a few bones in a pothole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I think it is it's sad. I mean, to think that there's there's fewer roads now where you can break 17 bones and just have such a great time as Sam does. It's, it's a shame. Jim, Jim I, I met so many really nice places and I had never realised that Catholic nun nurses can be incredibly pretty. Without this experience, I would not have known that. Oh, Do you know, know there's something really weird about yeah. what you just said. I'm not going there. I just, no, I'm not yeah, doing definitely that. definitely not going there. <laughs> yeah, well, that Route of 40 reminds me of the uh, the worst ferry ride I've ever been on. Well, I've had a few of them, but one, one that I just always remember is um, – from Puertamont to uh, Puerto Natales, sorry, Puerto Natales to Puertamont going north. That ferry is supposed to be, yeah, this is easy. You can get on it and there's no problem. And it was pretty straightforward. And we got on and we discovered that the passenger cabins are basically a big blob stuck on the top of a, sh- of a container ship, which had um, railroad tr- cars on going onto it and trucks and everything else. What we discovered about two days out well, we found out right away that there's a bunch of cattle on these railroad cars. And that was fine, except that there was no real way to clean them out. But then we discovered that as soon as the sea gets a little bit rough, you come out from the islands and out into the open Pacific, and the cows get seasick bad from both ends. <laughs> and they're right oh, no. below your cabin. And there's a couple of hundred of them. And this goes on for like a day and a half. And the smell, I remember it to this day. For those of you who are having lunch while you listen to Raw, we hope we're enjoying, you're enjoying your meal. (laughs) Please do. (laughs) That was bad. All your equipment has to have two uses, where it's all possible. That's what earplugs are for, isn't it? They suddenly turn into nose plugs. (laughs) 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 Yes, but then you're breathing it into your, your, oh, no, I don't even want to go. Let's let's try another subject. What else we got to talk about, Jim? (laughs) (laughs) Jim, you were asking about um, small crossings and um, rivers and bridges and mud and sand and that sort of thing. I, mean, I, I guess we sort of strayed into that area. And um, Brian, you mentioned um, a log bridge before. I had one of those in um, southern Uganda. I'd spent pretty much most of the day riding footpaths and tracks between the villages. And it's a really sort of sweaty, humid sort of heat. But I didn't mind because I wasn't really in a particular hurry. And it was so peaceful riding along these tracks. I was seeing a few people, the occasional person on a bicycle, that sort of thing. And some of the bridges had washed away, so it was a case of then dropping down into the riverbed. Some of the banks were quite steep, and I always went down into the rivers thinking, how on earth am I going to get up the other side? But it was always a case of open throttle and a bit of luck. And I knew that if I if I just didn't manage it, then sooner or later some locals would come along and they'd give me a push, <laughs> and it would just be part of the experience. And I had to do that once. And the the guys, they did not want pay, paying. Um, they just wanted to help and to have some fun. Um, I, I usually carry a bag of boiled sweets and a packet of biscuits and things like that to share in situations like that. And, and they were really happy just to have helped and to stand and have a bit of a, um, a yeah. grin at each other afterwards. And it, it was just part of the fun. 
that I came across one bridge that was over steep banks down to a small river. And I had no idea how I was going to make it across this. You know, there was dense brush to either side and no paths heading off into it. And I thought, well, there's no way that I can ride down the side of the river and see if there's somewhere where this dips. It would just be too dangerous to, to ride through the brush. And I got off the bike and I was just standing there looking at this and thinking, well, what am I going to do here? And it was it was it suddenly got really hot and surrounded by the insects and all of this sort of stuff. That The sound was loud and sort of going back. It sort of briefly entered my mind, but I wasn't that far away from where I wanted to go. Now, this bridge was made up of three logs about a foot in diameter. It was only about 20 feet across, but the river was a good 15 feet down. And I was bothered about the rounded tops of these and the gaps between the logs because I was sure my, my wheels were going to drop down in, in one. And if that was it, if they had, then they would tip me off and I'd be stuffed, wouldn't I? Because I'd just be tipped down into the, into the riverbed. And the two outer logs had about a four-inch step up to the beginning of each one. Um, but the middle one had this sort of little ramp going up to it, it's an earth ramp. The problem with that one um, was that the top of the log was smooth. And I guess from all of the feet going across, the outer one still had quite a lot of bark on, so they would have been much better to ride on. And I, as I said, I'd seen bicycles on the track, and I was just thinking, well, you know, if these guys can walk across with their bicycles, then I've got to be able to get my bike across. But, of course, there's no way I was going to wheel the blooming thing. It was far too heavy, you know, to try and do that. I think I was feeling a little bit brave that day because I decided to go for it. And I just, I decided the only way to do this, and remember, I'd only been riding motorcycle for about six months by this time. I remember thinking, look, if you look far up the track and you just focus on that and don't hesitate, line it up properly and then look ahead and open the throttle and go for it, you'll be fine. And before I could change my mind, that's exactly what I did. And I'll tell you what, it was over in seconds. And that was something that taught me that take risks, common sense is good, but sometimes you've just got to go for it. And if you make your risks calculated risks, then they usually work out. Does that make sense? Yeah. My, my mentor is your friend in that those yeah. situations, and you've got to go for it. I did one um, with a couple of mates. Um, we were riding up through the high country in Victoria in a place, little place called Dargo, and we we um, struggled along these tracks out of Bright, and we've got down to the Dargo River, and there's two or three four-wheel drives pulled up at this river crossing, which is about oh, 25, 30 metres across, and the water was flying pretty quickly. And I, had, I, I was riding with a mad mate who's a motocross rider. He said, ah, what are these blokes doing? Bugger it, I'm going for it. And he's just gone, bang, straight through. And um, I thought, oh, okay, well, I better have a crack at this. So he's over the other side, and these guys in the four-wheel drives, they're sitting there contemplating the world, uh, thinking it's too deep for their little uh, pretty four-wheel drives. So here we are on our motorbikes, and I thought, okay, I'll have a crack. And I'm on my big touring bike. Uh, it was 1150 GS in those days. And so I've just given it to it. And the um, mate over the other side's taken photos. I've got a great photo of me entering the water, and you cannot see me or the bike. I've just gone in a little bit too quick, and water's gone right over over me. And uh, I got halfway across, and the water is up to the air intake, 
and uh, I hit a rock. <laughs> the rock threw me sideways like I'm hitting upstream rather than across. Um, but anyway, she kept going. She started to run on one cylinder, and that started um, picking up again, and I, I scrambled across the other side. And I looked back, and these guys on their four-wheel drives, they're standing on top of their four-wheel drives taking photos of us crossing this river. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. That's what they're waiting for. Yeah, 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 wait, yeah, waiting for that. But they, they'd been there for half an hour saying it's too deep. We're not going across. And my mad mate just said, no, nah, bugger this, we're going. <laughs> so away we went. So is that sensible, again, Brian, just to, to run for it? I mean, is that, is that how you cross Mitch, rivers? Mitch was our friend. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking about pipe, um, Sam's story about the uh, pipe bridge or three logs or whatever it was. Yeah, three logs. I had the same thing in uh, – but Peru, yeah, Peru, the El Nino year, that year, La Nina was a very big, bad one. And all the bridges were out. Peru apparently lost over 100 bridges while we were there. Uh, and all we had was this pipe bridge, which they'd laid down four or five nice pipes. But then they'd loaded some logs on top of it to make it into a bit of an arch. And it was stupid and ridiculous. And all I had on the bike was one outside pipe that I had to ride on. And if I missed by an inch... It was into the river, and the river was raging like it was nasty. So I know exactly what Sam was feeling like, only I couldn't do it fast because I had literally an inch spare room. So it was pedal across, one foot up on the, on the logs in the middle, and the other foot on the foot peg, and just being really inch at a time kind of careful, 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 careful. Um, and, there, and at the same time, of course, there was dozens of people crossing. I mean, it, it was a traffic jam of people trying to cross this bridge at the same time. So it was a little bit nuts. Did but Susan you can, you, you, you can do it. Oh, Did yeah, Susan all the way. Um, Susan wasn't with me at that time. She had had to fly from, uh, what was it? I can't remember. Anyway, in oh, Peru. Was, she flew from Peru. Yeah, and I was right. riding with somebody else, another guy. On his 1150 or 1100 GS. She had to go home to provide money for, to support you, I think. Yes. Well, she had been on. <laughs> we, were out, we were literally out of money. I mean, we were on credit cards heading north. But Susan had already had a job offer from somebody um, and wanted her as soon as possible. So our plan was to ride up South America quickly. Well, yeah, this, this La Nina, it was it was terrible and the weather was bad and we were going slow, 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 slow. I mean, we were doing 50 kilometers a day and happy to be doing that when we should have been doing five or 600 uh, simply because the, the highway was washed out and there was water everywhere and bridges were gone. And, I mean, this is where I became a human dipstick up to my chest trying to see if it was passable. And it was just crazy. So she got on a plane and went, but we'd met somebody in um, Ushuaia uh, at, at Christmas, Max, who's an Italian on 1100 GS, and uh, he and I ended up riding together to Bogota. So that was just with him there to help me out if things went bad. And it could have been very bad. It could have been the bike could still be there. Mm. That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's a good point, though. It, really, when you get into these sticky situations, you know it's going to be sticky. Traveling with someone else is not a, such a bad idea. You know, that's happened to us a couple of times. Yeah, well, this this whole affair through Ecuador, Peru, and into Colombia, the conditions were literally terrible. We we started on the Pan American Highway, and the plan was we're going to do the Pan American to Bogota. Well, we ended up almost into Brazil trying to find a road, any road that would actually going north. 
and mud and roads that were just they've never been good they were not much more than goat tracks and here we're riding fully loaded touring bikes with street tires through a foot of mud and washed out rivers and roads and all kinds of terrible stuff and believe me that was an absolute huge fantastic adventure but it was fraught all the way and there were times when it was hmm are we going to make it or are we going to go down the cliff you know there were some bad dodgy times um looking back on it kind of Oh, there's so many stories I can tell from that. That just it was took us three weeks, I think, three or four weeks to go from Trujillo in Peru to Bogota, and you should be able to do that in like a week with no problem. We were three to four weeks, at least four weeks, I think. Um, but yeah, that was that was a real adventure. So the main thing, always, always, always in my mind, was we need to get to the end. So if this looks too dodgy, step back think about it, walk it, check it, clear out some rocks out of the way, whatever you have to do, um, take the saddlebags off the bike and carry them across the nasty spot. Do whatever you have to do to get there instead of going gung-ho and running the risk that you're going to crash, get badly injured in the middle of nowhere where cars are struggling to get through. Well, cars aren't getting through. Big buses are getting through, some of them, um, with huge tires and lots of tread. Uh, a few four by fours are getting through, and that's kind of it, and us. So if we've broken something, it could be days before we get to a hospital. So the mantra was always, "Don't crash, don't crash, don't crash." And Max hadn't been riding for very long, so every once in a while we'd hit a really bad stretch, and I'd have to ride his 1100 GS through because it was just too much for him. He kept falling and falling and falling. So it was an experience to say the least. But uh, that's actually where I learned that 1100 GSs actually handled really well i was amazed like i was thinking max has been riding like a year and he's doing really amazingly well and then the first time i had to ride it i discovered oh this thing's easier to ride than my ar80 wow mm. no wonder he's doing so well hey, brian do, do you have a, a spot do you, like do you know how high you can go in the water or how deep you can go in the water do you have a spot where you know on the bike and you, you sort of measure it up when you go in uh yeah uh, basically, um, the air intake, which is um, if it's covering the cylinders, uh, that's as high as you should go. But even if it does get a little bit in the air tank, you've still got the air box, which has a drain in it. But uh, if it's covering the uh, the cylinders on an BMW, that's pretty high. Mm. Or if the water gets inside my boots when I'm walking. <laughs> <laughs> There's the true measurement right there. Yes. <laughs> How about you, Michelle, on the KLR? Every bike is different. <laughs> Uh, I have to say I've not had it in water that deep. I, I think the deepest is probably, I don't know, 12 to 18 inches. Mm. So in, in different um, stream and creek crossings and water crossings in Mexico and in Central America, I was lucky in that I timed it apparently, not intentionally, just accidentally, so that I wasn't there in most of the countries during rainy season. And that's, I mean, that's a significant planning point for a lot of people that, you know, they need to be prepared for if they have routes that they're riding that have a lot of water crossings, going in the right season makes all the difference. But I didn't seem to have it that many issues. Most times water was either slow moving or fairly shallow. The, the other thing you've got to worry about, Jim, is um, with the BMWs and with shaft drive um, vehicles is um, when you go into water, 
um, you'll get you, you could get water quite easily into your, um, your your hub, and a lot of them have a breather hole. Breather hole in it, like the 1150 GS has a uh, a hole at the top of its uh, uh, its hub, and I actually um, rigged mine up and ran a hose up underneath the seat. So what it does is, if, if, when it contracts, it, it, it's like a breather. So um, you could quite easily get water in it, but if the, the hose is up near the bottom of the seat, you've got a lot more clearance. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, you should change your, your oil straight away, pretty pretty much straight away, if you've done that. So you're saying there's a downside to the shaft drive, is what you're saying? Um, <laughs> that's, that's, a ma- that's, a now, ma- that's a maintenance issue, Jim. Oh, you know? I see. Split hairs here now. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys seen the footage of these guys in India and places like that and they stick a, a hose pipe on their air intake and a hose pipe on their exhaust pipe and they take their little 125s across raging torrents where you can't see the bike at all but you just see the guy sitting on it puddling along through this this river it's incredible isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, we used to do that with four-wheel drives. I, I had um, my air intake up high and had it completely set up for, I actually had a bilge pump in the cab so that if the water started to come in, if they're into the, the cab, if you're spending too much time in deep water, because you can actually go in, it would float, but you turn on the bilge pump and it pumps it out automatically. It worked quite well, actually. Had it in some, some very deep water. Deep water. So it's funny because with my KLR, I, the re, I was going to ask Brian how you how you found your, did, did you actually check where the air intake was when you first bought it before you started to ride it off road and stuff? Because with my KLR, it was just trial by error. I just went in until I finally found out, oh yeah, this is too deep. <laughs> <laughs> it's actually a good idea to have a look and figure out where is it? How deep can I ride this? But one of the tricks to riding deep water is to have a bow wave. If you get a bow wave, then the uh, water is pushed away from the air intake. As soon as you slow down, then you're in deep trouble because that's when the water comes rushing in. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what you had in your mind, isn't intake. it, Brian? That's what you had in your yeah, mind yeah, yeah, yeah. Was, when I, you hit that river. Actually, well planned. Actually, I was trying to aquaplane right across. But yeah, didn't that's what I was <laughs> Ride it like you stole it, you know? <laughs> Well, we'll uh, we're just going to take a, a quick break and and thank uh, the sponsor for Raw, which is FreshTracks.co.uk. Fresh Tracks has been around since the '90s, and uh, what they do is they work with companies to inspire, motivate, challenge, build communication skills through uh, team building exercises. They work with companies like Mars, Pfizer, Yahoo, Comic Relief, and um, to find out uh, what they're doing, look at their website. It's FreshTracks.co.uk. Uh, if you're interested in team building, you have a company, and particularly in this time when we're we're starting to sort of, I, I think, change the way a lot of companies operate. You know, working at home, etc. They have ways of uh, of dealing with that. Freshtracks.co.uk. For our next segment, the next segment is, what should I hide for the border crossing? So what's in or, or what may be in your pack that could unknowingly get you in trouble at border crossings? We're not talking about smuggling here, Grant, so you can just save those stories uh, that you have. Um, we're talking about things that, that could actually get you in trouble. Maybe it's paperwork. Maybe it's, uh, well, whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll find out. We'll dig into this. And then, Grant, the reason I'm making fun of you is because you've come up with so many stories about, well, different things that you've done in the past that we're learning about. <laughs> It's great silence yeah. from Grant. That's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> He's not talking to you. 
He's not. That's it. Did I deeply offend? Did it sound that bad when I said that? Yeah, that's it. You're in trouble now. Yeah, I feel terrible all of a sudden. <laughs> I hope you weren't out of line with that last crack about smuggling, Jim. I know. I can, I can always cut it. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow we've lost Grant. He's still... It's like we have. There's little lights back. there. Oh, oh there he is. Yep, I was just gone for a brief, brief bio break. Oh, you weren't, you weren't uh, even listening fair. to what I said. No, didn't hear oh. a word of it. Oh, right, you missed Jim saying the <laughs> nicest possible things about you. You read us. <laughs> well, I was talking about so our, sweet. I, I was talking about our, our, our subject, which is um, what should I hide for the border crossing? I was just saying that it's not about smuggling. It's a, it's about talking about things that could get you in trouble, maybe unknowingly that you have in, in your um, your bag on your bike uh, on your person. Michelle, have you have you run into a, an issue with that? Oh. Gosh, I, I think many times I I always think of uh, border crossings with white knuckles. I'm always nervous about what I'm going to get caught with. And I don't carry anything that I think is going to be an issue. But it seems like at some countries, it's little things. I know in, um, I remember one border crossing between Chile and Argentina, there was a mile long list of things that you couldn't take in. And most of it was food related. So you couldn't... Yeah, yeah, and it's very common. But there were things that I hadn't seen before. I'm used to not caring, or at that point, I was used to not caring like dairy products or meat or fresh fruit and veg. But there were things like um, honey. And um, I can't remember what else. There was something specifically that was in my cooking kit. It might have been oil or something. I usually carry a little bit of cooking oil and things in my my small kitchen bag. Um, but yeah, I, I, it, I seem to be able to get away with quite a few things. I smuggled stuff, I guess, in my kitchen kit. And um, I know one of the other things that I carried for a while was a small bottle of pepper spray. And pepper spray is a no-no in a lot of countries. And I, if I was going to be traveling alone, I had packed one and I kept that in my toiletry kit. And unknowingly for a long time carried that across in borders, um, not really realizing or being conscious of the fact that I'd had that and wasn't supposed to be carrying it in. But because it was in my toiletry kit, I hadn't really thought about it and it had never been found. So, this is one of the small yeah. ones that this like the size of, uh, what is it? It's not much bigger than a lipstick, is it? Uh, no, it was a little bigger than that. It would have been, about, I suppose, like not quite the size of like a deodorant container or a travel shampoo or something. Oh, so fair um, size it wasn't one. The, the, yeah, it wasn't like the big bear spray cans, those larger ones. But yeah, right. it was... It, I have to ask, yeah. what good is it going to do you in your toiletry kit? <laughs> Grant, come on, uh, you know. Just, just, just a moment, please. Just, just, I just got to get into my toiletries and check my stuff out here. Just hang on a sec. I'll That's just wait. Right. Just be patient while I get my uh, my pepper spray out. Just just sit tight. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it was for when I was camping alone in the woods, but I tucked it away right. in the toiletry kit for border crossings. Mm. All right, that makes sense. <laughs> you wouldn't want to get that mixed up with your powder, would you? No. That's you, right. <laughs> you, you know the thing with, with, with bear spray, with, with uh, pepper spray, you have to be careful. I mean, if it leaks, have you guys ever had it leak? Uh, I've had the experience, yes. Yeah. Very, we, very, very bad. We've oh, had it leak wow. before. And, oh, man, you cannot get rid of this stuff. It gets into the floor or anything. It gets into bags. I mean, you, you literally can't just can't get rid of it. It stays for years. So it's it's something you want to you gotta think twice about carrying. Because uh, often the containers are aluminum and um, they'll corrode. 
Can you yeah. carry it in Canada and not America or America and not Canada? It's, yeah. it, it's both, really. It, what it is, I think, you think you can carry it in both the U.S. and Canada, but they have to be labeled different. In Canada, you can't carry mace or, or any personal protection. You can carry bear spray. That's not a problem. Not a not uh, not in the, like on a plane or anything like that. But but and I think in the U.S. it's the other way around. Is it Michelle? Or can you carry them? That's both? right. No, you, you can carry. Well, you can carry both because they do have bear spray canisters too. But I've taken bear spray and gone um, up through, ridden across from Montana into Alberta, and been told that I can't take that bear spray into Correct. Alberta. So, you have yeah. to get across the border. Right. Yeah, we have people coming for the hum, and they have to buy their bear spray in Canada when they get here from the states. Yes. Do you really need to carry it? Some people just like um, the smell. In bear country. <laughs> I haven't met like? anybody that does. <laughs> I always yeah, think that if, if you're close enough to use bear spray, you're too bloody close. Well, yeah. Sometimes yes. you're surprised. Yeah, it's a last resort. You, you don't. You, yeah, it's, it's a last resort because I mean, you got to take into account which way the wind's blowing, where where's the bear, how fast they're coming at you, is it going to make contact? There's so many. It's really one of those things that I, yeah. I think. Yeah, it's probably. Right. Yeah, and I've, I've been on, guys, waiting about- for bears to get out of the way, and you just wait and wait and wait, and eventually they leave. But you've got your hand on the bear spray in case they come for you. But, uh, yeah, it's mostly. For safety. Yeah. It depends on the bear too, of course. I mean, you know, black bears aren't the same as grizzly bears. I mean, obviously in size, but uh, in the way they act too. I mean, I've many times chased black bears out of the camp because they'll grow, they'll run, but um, I wouldn't be doing that with a grizzly. (laughs) So I just, I just love this talk. When we were in America, in one of the um, national parks, there were signs saying, if you see bears, bang your saucepan lids together. Well, that's all well and good if you've got saucepans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the other advice was to get in your car and lock the doors. Well, that's all well and good if you've got a car. <laughs> that's right. we, were, we were lacking on both of those pieces of safety advice. You, you don't have to worry. If you get on your bike, the bears know not to bother you. You're off, you're off limits at that point. We've got a bridge, got a photo of us on a bridge with a bear. Yeah, walking past and, us. And there's a line of cars and everyone got back in their cars and they're all... All got their saucepan lids out. Yeah, they're all, they're all locked in their cars and we're in the line on our bike and the bears walk straight past us on the other side of the road. Mm. Anyway, <laughs> the story is... I should tell this joke about uh, bears and bear spray. It's always a good idea to keep an eye out for bear scat so you have an idea of bears in the area. You should be able to recognize the difference between black bear and grizzly bear scat. Black bear droppings are smaller and often contain berries, leaves, and possibly bits of fur. Grizzly bear droppings tend to contain small bells and smell of pepper. <laughs> oh yeah. Of course it's it's nothing compared to an eastern brown snake. There's there's no doubt about that. <laughs> well there's that. Yeah. They build cats big in Australia. I can just imagine Shirley's cat going down the drive with a bear in its port and it is mouth. <laughs> and and yeah, I heard no that worries, cat no. meow a few minutes ago. And and when it meowed this time, I felt different about that cat. I, yeah. I you know, I'm thinking, wow, that's the cat, you know, that's safe Shirley. Very cool cat. He's very vocal, our cat. Grant, how about you? Everyone always mocks Australia. They, I find bears, while they're cute, they do look kind of scary. They do have incre- incredibly long claws. Yeah. And they're very strong. Yeah. There's no yeah, doubt. We want to be careful. Crossing borders. Well, the only 
we've had a couple of times, some people will have seen the picture of our bike. We've got the side panniers at the front and we've got the big wide top box at the back. Um, and we've been asked by the border guides, what do you got in there, guns? And I've always just laughed and said, yeah. And they laugh and wave us through. Like, huh, what, <laughs> what should I miss? You so know, what kind of guns are you carrying? Devils, I'm not going to tell you. It's obviously a long gun. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Machine guns, right? Uh, yeah, they're, they've always, in my experience, been more concerned about weapons and drugs are the main things that they care about. Um, we've only been thoroughly searched once, and that was going into Costa Rica from Nicaragua, but that was during the Contra Wars, so you know, things were a little different there. Um and other than that, nobody's ever searched. Nobody's ever looked at anything. I mean, we've had to lift a lid off one of the saddlebags so that they can look inside, just kind of poke around a bit. Uh, and that's it. But a lot of people think about taking weapons. Um, that's a huge no-no anywhere. Uh, there's a thread that's been going on the hub since, I think, 2001 uh, called Guns, Knives, and Hand Grenades. And a guy was asking tongue in cheek, what do you carry for protection? I mean, we hear about people getting robbed and there's little insurrections and wars and all kinds of things. So what do you carry? And the, the thread is well worth reading and checking out. But the basic, basic answer is don't carry any of that. The number one thing to do is to talk your way out of it. Or sorry, correction. The number one thing to do is don't get into an area where there's going to be a problem in the first place. And the second is talk your way out of it. Third is, if they want your wallet, just give it to them. Of course, you've got a mugger's wallet that you don't mind handing out. Um, but weapons, number one problem is you're just going to be in more trouble. They're, they're more likely to be used to weapons. If you pull out a knife, well, they've probably got a gun, and they'll probably end up using it on you because there's probably more than one of them, and they'll win. Um, most of us Westerners are not trained in battle, in fighting, and these guys have probably had some experience. They're much more likely to win the battle. So just don't get into it. Give them whatever they want. Back slowly away. Just walk right away. You don't need weapons. So that's probably my number one thing to think about is don't take weapons. Forget it. Don't cross the border with them. The border guards find them on you. That's it. But how about things that you, you that you wouldn't expect would get you in trouble, or or that you wouldn't remember? Like, have you ever been? Have you ever had problems with paperwork? You ever been caught at a border with some paperwork that you didn't want to show somebody, or at least you know whether the potential was there, or a photograph or something? I will I not discuss that. Um, moving on to something else. <laughs> uh, <laughs> mostly, it's prescription drugs. Mm-hmm. Prescription yeah. drugs is a big one. If you're go, if you have prescription drugs. You should always carry them in the original prescription bottle. Uh, make sure you use a little uh, some of that cotton in there so they don't rattle around and turn into dust. Uh, but the original prescription bottle, and it's actually a good idea to have an original, easy to read on doctor's letterhead. And I'm saying easy to read because we all know about doctor's handwriting. Um, have a, an original prescription and what it's for, why you have it. Because, we, and you can match that up with the prescription bottle. Yeah, we on, carried so. a letter um, from our doctor explaining what our medication was and, and, and yep. what it was for. And we had it translated into Russian and we had it translated into Greek. Excellent. So um, so we're, 
chances are you on some of those smaller borders where you might not find someone who reads English, um, at least we had a, a little bit of a backup. And, and, yeah, that's right. We, we did yeah. that. And like the medications we have to carry, we'd fill up one penny, I'm sure. Yeah, but um, I, I had a friend who um, he has some psych medication that he has to take and he was travelling with uh, two other friends uh, going through the stands and um, anything with E-N, I-N-E on the end of it, um, board and guard, border guards will pick up and they want to destroy. Codeine. And um, mm. Paul had this stuff um, that he needed to take every day and they had a, uh, they were pulled up at a border. I can't remember which one it was, but um, the guards took all these medications and they had a, an incinerator to destroy all this stuff. They're going to put it in there. And his two mates stood between the border guards and argued with him as saying, you'll go crazy, you know, and all this sort of stuff. And in the end, they had to, it took them hours, but they had to um, sort their way through that. Um, so it's really important, and that's what I told him that story about how we got around that by um, having uh, letters from doctors and transcribed and things like that. And he wouldn't have had that problem if he'd have gone through that that process. Another thing with the stands in particular, they seem to be very particular about what they will and won't let in. Uh, if they want to do a really big search on you, they will get out your laptop or your yep, tablet right. and go through all your photos and videos. And sometimes that will cause you, if, even if it's just a movie that you've downloaded, that they may find offensive. Yeah, they're, they're looking for. Yeah, that's right. That's they're, a good one. Was, wow. What pornography was one, and oh yeah, but religious, and, and religious stuff. Yeah. Um, in um, who'd know? Just, but it's just something to to consider what you actually have on your laptop. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's some friends worried. of mine more um, often too. Some friends of mine went into um, Iran and they were stopped at the border and they were thoroughly checked. And this was the first time they had been thoroughly checked. And um, they had in Pakistan just had a whole load of photos developed. And um, there was a picture of them having a party topless on the beach at Goa. Mm. I mean, yeah. yeah. And they were not. Um, welcome at all. I mean, they shouldn't have been doing it and go, I, it, I, I loathe what I see going on down there. Mm-hmm. It's just complete insult to local custom and culture. Um, but well, they were they were held up for three days at the border just because of these photos. Um, most of the time they were just ignored. Um, so it, it wasn't it wasn't physically intimidating, but it was mentally intimidating because, of course, all the time they were they were just wondering, yeah. geez, where, where's this going to go? Mm. Um, and there is, it's well worth doing a bit of a check anyway on what the, the different countries um, do and don't like as part of your trip planning. It's entertaining. And, for example, Singapore with chewing gum. Yeah. Um, yeah. Chewing gum's illegal there. You can't use it. So, don't even bother thinking about it. And What's just the going danger back to with it, that? 
It's because Singapore is such a clean um, country. They, it's, it's, it's incredibly clean. You never see litter on the streets. The buildings are painted. I mean, certainly in Chinatown, for example, and, and the very poor areas, then the buildings are a bit shabbier. But you go into the main areas of Singapore and it's absolutely pristine. It's almost like the plants are trimmed daily into shape and that sort of stuff. So chewing gum and the chewing gum splatters that you get on the street, well, it's a, just a huge no-no. Yeah. Um, That's right, Sam. I used to lock people up for um, dropping chewing gum on the ground and got rid of it that way. Yeah, that's right. Yep. It's it's the only time I've ever smuggled anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. But, um, I, I, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, this doesn't sort of relate to motorcycle travel, but when I was um, working in the armed robbery squad, I had a, a guy um, who'd uh, disappeared up to, to um, Queensland and um, he was, I had him out, uh, warrant out for his arrest, and he was arrested up there. And I had to leave quickly from the office. So I'm in my suit, I've got my briefcase with me. I had to get a flight from Melbourne to Sydney, uh, Sydney to Brisbane, do the extradition, and then getting back to Melbourne. And I travelled through uh, metal detectors at Melbourne Airport, Sydney Airport, Brisbane Airport, and on my way back, I've got the prisoner handcuffed to me and I've got my briefcase and I put it through the scanner and all of a sudden bells and whistles go off. They found 38 bullets in it. And <laughs> 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 I said, oh, you can have them, take them. I don't want What up, Brian? And there are common things that um, it's just not worth taking into to different countries. For example, if you're writing a paper diary, um, make no border crossing or military comments or political comments as you're writing. And if you do, then just do it in shorthand that nobody can understand. Just make yourself one word notes, that sort of thing. But if you are unlucky enough to be given a thorough search, then your diary is going to be something that they go to. And I know that people have been stopped at borders and they've been told to hand over their password for their laptops and they their diaries have been found. And you just think, well, some of the stuff that I've heard people have been writing there, and they're quite blunt about what they're seeing and what they're expecting and um, people they're planning to link up with and reasons why that could be read two ways and that sort of stuff. And in the end, this is just common sense and respect, isn't it? Uh, it's, it's like alcohol. I know people that smuggle alcohol into countries where it is the biggest no-no out, where it's a, a, a complete cultural slap in the face. Why do it? When you're traveling, you're supposed to be respecting the different cultures that you're going to. You're supposed to be there to learn about them. And how would we feel if people came into our countries and, and just did things that were blatant um, anti our countries? It's it's just not mm. cool, is it? No. No, that's a good point. Border guides will also look at your blog. Mm -hmm. And I've seen some blogs written by people traveling where they are extremely disparaging of the country they're in, um, a lot of comments that they shouldn't be making that just are not going to go over well. Um, if somebody looks at that, they could easily just get rejected, tossed out, or tossed in jail for some of the things I've seen. Yeah. So don't, don't do that. Just be sensible. Be, they, be aware that there are other ways of thinking, and your right to free speech is not 100% in all parts of the world. And you don't necessarily, they don't necessarily have to have a reason. 
if they just don't like the look of you, well, you know, you can't argue with them. If they won't stamp your passport, you don't get yeah. it. Yeah, you don't have a right to enter their country. No. Not at all. It's their country and they and you are asking them to please, please, pretty please let you in. They don't have to for sure. But you know what you were saying, Grant, that they would have a cursory search of the bike and open one of the panniers. Mm-hmm. I don't know what happens when you two travel, but with us, they always open mine. <laughs> and closing well, is my secret. pannier is a feat of mastery in itself. And then when you've got to try and close it again after a border guard has been shuffling through all your staff. But one at one border crossing, I had a shiwi. I don't know if Michelle carries a shiwi. Um, I'd like to say I've never used it, but I carried it. And the guy picked it up um, and said, what's this? And I said, it's for women and it's private. He dropped it as if it was red hot and then slammed (laughs) slammed the pannier shut. So I guess if I wanted to smuggle drugs in, if I put it under the shiwi, we would have been good as gold. Well, I've also heard that a a favorite method for some couples is that her underwear goes on top of the pannier. Right. (laughs) That stops them quick. Definitely (laughs) worth doing. We just did a couple episodes on Adventure Rider Radio uh, um, and looking for top tips. And Steph Jevons, the the tip that she gave was put tampons on the top of the bag because she found that when she goes through, they open up, they see the tampons. It's like, oh, no, no. (laughs) They just close it. You know, they they want nothing to do with it. And she said it, it works a lot. Burger side is underwear and tampons, and mine is all the smelly socks that I can collect for two or three days before. Did you have anything else? I think people need to. Sorry. um, Yeah, I mean, I think people need to be careful about what they're doing with their drones and sat sat phones and things like that, because there are countries and um, that are sensitive to those things, and it's worth just having them tucked discreetly out of sight, Um, just just not obvious. Um, If you have these things that are at the top of your pannier, for example, um, because it's easy access if you want to do some filming or you've got it in your tank bag or whatever. Um, Well, actually, for a border crossing, tuck it in the bottom of your pannier, well out of sight, so they've got to go digging. We're talking about all of these sort of things, but I have only ever had my panniers opened once. And we, t- we talked about that in a couple of episodes back of Raw, and that was going in Singapore. But that's the only time. Um, had the panniers opened a couple of times, but literally no digging around, nothing. Um, but maybe that's because I look so sweet and innocent. Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, what you were saying about drones. don't look like drug smugglers. <laughs> the, the other thing to consider with video uh, and cameras is having a camera mount on your helmet. Oh, yeah. Brian's got a camera mount on his helmet, which didn't have a camera in it, and we were questioned several times at, at borders, particularly, again, in the stands, um, because you're not allowed to film or take photographs at a border crossing, and they mm. were concerned that um, we were going to be filming the border crossing because he had one of those little mounts on the side. So that's also something to consider. Oh, Don't that's... get the camera out or get your phone out and try and take a picture of the nice <clears throat> guards with their AK-47s because they don't take kindly to it. And, and, and drones, drones nowadays, who there's it? Um, oh, Australian Australian, couple. The West Australian couple travelling the full drive um, got a drone out and were were using that in Iran near a, near a military base and wondered why they got arrested. Yeah, I wonder. Come on. Right? Wow. No, it's just plain stupid. No, you have to you, – there's a lot of countries where drones are just flat illegal 
Um, and any country, drones near a military installation or an airport or a border crossing, all of that, forget it. It's just not safe. There so are plenty of places careful. in Australia you can't use drones. Yeah, for sure. Lots of places everywhere. Or something even like your spot device, you know, illegal in some countries. Right. Spot's illegal. I hadn't heard that. Mm-hmm. Any when, sa- uh, satellite communicator. When the Women Riders World Relay was uh, carrying the baton, women motorcyclists did this around the world relay. And, and we had a carved wooden baton and it was in a case accompanied with a uh, spot tracker. And it had was leaving a breadcrumb trail so all of the 20,000 women that were, you know, following the event could look on a website and see where the baton was at. And when it got to Pakistan, the trail stopped. Well, they confiscated the spot tracker. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it wasn't allowed in country. The wooden baton was. And we were more concerned about the wood that the baton was made of and whether in some countries that was going to be an issue being an import item. Was it considered art? Was it a species of wood that, you know, could or could not cross the border? But, um, yeah, that became the issue was actually the the GPS locator and that disappeared in Pakistan. So we had to get a replacement at a country further down the road and start tracking it again. It's like two-way radios in some places if you've got that that kind of CB intercom system between pinion and rider or two riders on different bikes. That can cause you grief in some places. They don't want you using those. Yeah, sat phones as well. There's some places, forget it. So mm-hmm. you, you need to really, if you're carrying any of that kind of stuff, you need to really do your homework to make sure you know what you're doing. But but you won't know to think, you won't know to check for it, right? I mean, it, like, that's why I'm saying, you know, that's why we're talking about things that, that seem like they're sort of innocuous, but they end up getting you in trouble or they could get you in trouble because, you know, you just don't know to check for every little thing. I mean, do you guys do that when you get to, before you get to a border? Are you researching everything that they say is restricted? No. No. I no. would never have thought about a spot tracker being seen yeah. as illegal anyway. It's a safety yeah. device. You think, well, why, why would it be illegal? But it's satellite yeah, communication. They, they have it. Uh, there's a yeah. law. You cannot use satellite communication. And, yeah. and Jim, there's so many things you just can't research because it will be at the whim of the border guard. Mm, right. Yeah. If he wants to give you the shits, he will take something out of your pannier that, and he'll say, well, you know, you're not allowed to bring that in. And if you had the wherewithal, you could probably fight it and, and he he doesn't actually have the right to take it, but you don't have the wherewithal and he has no reason. But the kind of things that you're talking about, like you said about the mount that, I mean, that's something to know that you only know through experience that, that even just that mount can Mm. set somebody off and and start them questioning you. What's with the mount? Where's the camera? What are you doing? Yeah. 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 Shirley just said that you you can't research everything. Um, but it is worth asking other travellers that are coming towards you as you're travelling, was there anything that you picked up that's a no-no? And that's just the easiest sort of research to do. I mean, getting online for all of this sort of stuff, it's, oh, where do you stop? But, uh, one country that really surprised me was Iran, and I really liked travelling in Iran, the hospitality, the welcome, et cetera, et cetera, even the police officers. But it tickled me that um, anything to do with gambling is illegal in Iran and very strictly enforced. So playing cards, they won't let you in if you've got playing cards. If you've got a backgammon set, they won't let you in. Dice, etc. Um, yeah, it's just one mm. of those quirks, isn't it? Wow. Well, those are the kind of things that if they find it, they'll generally just confiscate it. Yeah. It's not a big deal. And uh, then the go out and play cards. You probably do. Yeah. Well, I found that generally border guards, people that stop their um, road guards, whatever, and police, whoever stops you on the road, all of these guys that are there for security, 99% of what they stop you for is 
they're curious. What are you mm-hmm. doing? And and it's it's you start with a conversation. You start with being friendly. Don't start out by being, you know, what are you stopping me for? I haven't done anything. Hey, they're curious. Talk to them. Have fun. And I've never had a problem. Yeah. We, um, this didn't happen to us, but when we were in Nepal, um, we were warned that if you were stopped by the Maoists, this is going back to 2003, and uh, if you were stopped by the Maoists, they would ask for a donation to their cause, and uh, the plan was give them some money for their cause, and they would then give you a receipt. So if you got stopped by another band of Maoists, you could show them the receipt, and it's virtually, we already gave it the office. Yeah. And they so and they let you through. Me. We did meet people that had had encountered the Maoists, and uh, we didn't we didn't meet them at all. Even though we rode right through the area, they were meant to be um, quite active in. It's not so bad if you're if you're you know getting something caught at the border like something you've forgotten. I mean, and you're trying to carry through, and they say, "Oh, you can't take that," whether it's fruit or or food or whatever. Like you're saying, it's those other things. Like for instance, the the GPS. They take that from you at the border, but a drone, as we as we've already talked about, can cause some you know different reaction. Same as the photographs or or, or notes into your journal. Are there, are there any other things you guys can think of that um, that might be something you wouldn't think of when you get caught at the border with? Ooh, be careful with pocket knives. You don't want yeah. one that's too big. A six or eight inch blade, not good. The little Swiss Army knife are usually okay, and we travel with a Leatherman and we've never had a problem with that because it's quite clearly a tool rather than a weapon. Yeah, but if you've got a six-inch blade and a nice sheath, especially a double-edged blade, yeah, forget it. They're they're not going to be happy about that. (laughs) I'll carry a knife. It goes with my crocodile Dundee hat. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle, did you have something for that? No, I was just going to say, I actually had a, uh, a hatchet confiscated. And that was, I think, again, that was going into Canada. The C- Canadian customs is really tough, hardcore. Yeah. But um, I think it was considered that it w- could potentially be a weapon. And I was really surprised by that because I was camping. And so I intended to use it for firewood and, of course, didn't carry anything else illegal. Saw it as a tool and uh, it was taken. What about your fork? That could be a weapon, too. Right. They should have taken that from you. I mean, really, it, it kind of makes you laugh a little bit because you could have, as soon as you cross the border, you stop at your first store and you could have bought another hatchet. They're not restricted right. in Canada. No, nope, well, Maybe that was the mission. Maybe somebody's cousin owned the local supply <laughs> yeah, store. Right. But anyway. <laughs> uh, one thing we haven't talked about is um, money. And there are some countries that have a restriction as to how much money that you can bring in. And there are some countries that... Um, they will make a note of how much money you've bought in um, and to stop you trading on the black market if there happens to be one um, then they're going to be counting the money that you've got left and ticking it off at the time you leave and if you're not sort of spending what they think is a reasonable amount of money um, so you know keeping excess money um, hidden away at border crossings is a good idea yeah just very well hidden away because if they find it they get unhappy yep but you're right, well, Sam. In in um, I think again, it's the stands. They've just so peculiar. These people at their borders, they actually tell you you're only allowed to take in yeah. you know 150 dollars in U.S. currency, and um, if they check you on the way out and you've been there for three weeks and you've still got 150 dollars in U.S. currency, they'll be wanting to know how you lived if you because buying U.S. currency on the black market in um, Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan is as simple as it's easier than going to an ATM. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, but they want you to go to the ATM. That's yeah, the whole that's point. What I was thinking. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, because right. the exchange here. Yeah. Well, it's like in Iran where they don't have ATMs, so they want you to change your US dollars into real, and then you get a whole bunch of real, which you can't buy anything with. Yep. Well, I think we should move on to plugs. I'm going to start with you, Michelle. What do you have for a plug? Oh, well, I think um, it's probably time for me to... to um, start working on membership for Women's International Motorcycle Association for the U.S. So if there are any riders who are interested um, in joining, it's just kind of a, a great network association for women riders who are interested in international connections and international uh, riding. So it was an organization that was founded in the U.S. by an American woman in 1950 and then went international. And there are chapters in about 40 countries so far. So uh, again, there's so many great resources out there, but this one's specifically for women. If, if women are interested, um, you can go to wemaworld.com and get information about chapters in your own countries. And I am the president for the American division. So just starting to build that membership from scratch. Is this that something you have to buy? No. Uh, for the U.S., well, each chapter is a bit different, but in the U.S., no, you do not have to. Hmm. Okay. We'll put that link in the show notes. Shirley, what do you have? Mine's not a plug. It's a cheerio. Uh, a friend of mine, this is a very bit convoluted story, but a friend of mine bought a copy of our book to give to her son's father-in-law for Christmas and she said he's not much of a reader and I thought this is a good start to this conversation um, but she thought he you know he might enjoy our bike our books because he does ride a motorcycle and when he unwrapped his Christmas present he went wacko I listen to them on raw every month I love them <laughs> so this is a to Richard I hope you're enjoying the book wow very nice, nice. fantastic Mine's not a, a plug as such, but a, a bit of a shout out to the guys running the Dakar at the moment. Our um, little Aussie hero, Toby Price, has come to grief after um, jury rigging his bike um, to get to the last stage the day before yesterday, where he had a split in his tyre. And he fixed that with a piece of gaffer tape and cable ties and ran the race and came second on that day. Nice. Today, today he um, he was going like you know, he's second overall, and there's only uh, three more stages left, I think. And uh, he's come to grief and uh, was knocked out, uh, broken a collarbone, two wrists, and an ankle. Oh, and wow. um, uh, yeah, look, anyone who finishes the Dakar is a winner in my opinion. But uh, I don't know whether anybody's been catching up with it. But boy. Gee, these guys can ride. Um, So it's a shout-out to anyone who's um, participated, our friend Christophe uh, Barriavajou, who did – what's his video called, Cheryl? Um, Dream something. Yeah, Dream Dream, dream Racer. Dream Dream Racer, racer. that's it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Christophe, um, um, it's a great little video. If anyone can catch up to it, he's he's been to Horizons and done all that sort of stuff. But – uh, look, uh, I just a shout out to anyone who's done the Dakar, or uh, if you haven't caught up with it, try and catch up with it. It'll be on um, uh, playback on television and Red Bull. Of, I think are running it at the moment too. So anyway, so that's just my plug and uh, feeling for uh, little mate Toby Price. Yeah, I saw that um, 
that it that had happened, but I hadn't. I'd saw the headlines, but I didn't know what um, what had actually happened to him. Grim. Um, yeah, one of your guys is called Sam too, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah he is too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's doing okay. He's he's a he's a junior rider in the KTM team, and he's uh, fifth or seventh overall, which is a fantastic. Wow. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. And there's a Sam Sunderland, who's a pommy guy who won it uh, a couple of years ago. He's doing really well too. Yeah, good. That's amazing to watch these guys. It's it's just the the courage, the speed, and the skill. Wow, um, totally impressed. Yeah, they make it look yeah, easy. They, they make it look like you can go and yeah. do the same thing. Yeah, they're do- except that they're doing it at ninety miles an hour. Exactly, <laughs> I know it's it's bizarre, but they make it look so easy the way they just glide along, and it just looks so effortless. You think, well, that can't yeah, be that yeah. difficult. <laughs> Riding along at one hundred and sixty k an hour and waving to the helicopter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Come on, you guys! Fantastic, Sam. What do you got? Um. Last week, uh, a chap called Rand Phillips got in touch with me on Facebook, and he said that um, his four-year-old son had seen the cover of my book, Tortius Totems, and had become absolutely fascinated by um, totem poles. So he'd done a Google search to try and find out where this totem pole was from, because he'd read the book and he knew roughly the area, but I don't mention exactly where it is. And um, I could not remember where I had taken um, this photo. And my diary is um, stashed up in a, a box up in our loft. And I thought, well, I'll bounce this out on Facebook and I'll see whether anybody knows exactly where it is to save me getting up in the loft and, and hunting through this trunk to find the, the journal. Anyway, so people have been um, responding, but nobody has got it yet. Now, I decided that I would get into, I was pretty sure that it was from the Campbell River area of Vancouver Island. So I decided that I would get in touch with the tourist board at Campbell River and send them the photos and just say, you know, do you, do you recognize this totem? None of us can find pictures of it on Google. Does it exist? Where Do you know if it, where it's from? Well, today they got back to me, the, the tourist board, and they said, well, look, actually, no, we don't know this. Um, but get in touch with um, the Campbell River Museum, and this is their email address. Maybe these guys will know. And while we've been talking on air, an email has pinged in, and Campbell River Museum know exactly what it is, and uh, they've just explained where it is and so on. So I'd just like to thank the Campbell River Tourist Board and the Campbell River Museum for getting involved in this project, because I can now get back to Rand's son, um, and say, yeah, this is where it is. And hopefully we'll be able to get some more pictures organised so he can see what this totem pole looks like from, from top to bottom. So, yeah, cheers, guys. So where is it? Um, I haven't read the email in full yet, so I uh, don't know the pinpoint um, place. I just saw the headline flash up as we were talking, and I thought, oh, how cool is that? that they bothered, both bothered to get back to me, and now these guys know where it is. Because I'd done the typical thing, you know, it was a long day, and um, we'd started off really early in the morning, and we'd been buzzing around and stopping here, looking there, and we'd been to Comox and Duncan and various other places, and... At that time, you know, we weren't traveling to write books or anything like that. So we didn't always note down what we, you know, where things that we'd photographed exactly were. And this was one of those days. It was too busy. So um, I just wrote my journal at the end of the day and didn't make a note of where the photographs were from. And yeah, of course, Rand's son started the question. But I just think it's a lovely story. Um, and I'm really interested to find out where it actually is. Yeah. 
Grant, now, um, you know, I know you've obviously everybody's had a year here, 2020, oh, yeah. but a lot's been a lot hasn't been happening with Horizons Unlimited. But anyway, what do you got for this year? What's what's it shaping up like for you? Well, we're doing a lot of a lot of looking at it, and we're being very careful. Um, for almost a year now, we have communicated with our local organizers and our event venues, and we've been looking at monitoring the regional and global developments and travel bans and what's happening with local events. And it's it's been very tough. We did manage to get two events running last year, one in France and one in South Africa, but that's it. Um, they both managed to luck into a date that where things were okay and there was no restrictions. Um, they both used our COVID-19 action plan and they were very careful and had no issues. We've had no reports of any problems. So going forward, while everyone is excited about the COVID vaccines, we certainly are, um, we're hopeful that we will re- uh, return to a connected world at some point where we can actually shake hands with friends and meet people, and that would be great. But realistically, it's going to be many months before enough of us have been vaccinated to allow all of us to feel safe to congregate in, in numbers. We all miss that connection with people, and for us, especially the travelers at our events and, and going to the events and meeting all these people, it's, it's a wonderful thing. But as we consider risks and impacts, we're aware that the HU demographic skews uh, we get older. And our deepest wish is that everyone's well-being remains intact. And we also worry about the small communities our events are held in. One of the ones we have here and here in Canada, um, the town has a population of 2,000 people. It's not very much. Uh, so they've got very limited medical resources, and we don't want to bring a whole large group of people from all over, potentially one or two of them with the virus. So, and last but not least, we're concerned about our organizing teams who have to run the events, keep people happy, and stay themselves safe. So it's, it's difficult, but we're being very careful. Uh, for the first event of the year, Virginia, which is normally held in April of every year, um, we are moving it, hopefully for the last time, because we moved it last year, to September 30th to October 3rd, uh, which is a date we hope will allow enough time for vaccinations to be more comprehensive, more people vaccinated. Uh, but at all our events for 2021, we have our COVID-19 action plan that we worked on very hard. Uh, we've tested it in France and South Africa, and the team will implement that to help ensure the safest experience possible for all. It incorporates best practice health guidance. We update it continually on new new data, and it airs very strongly on the side of caution. We are not going to put anybody at risk that we can possibly help. Um, and we will be, of course, looking carefully at what local guidance is on holding events of any number of people. So... Positive outcomes grow from staying true to what makes the global HU community, the ARR adventure travel community uh, special. What makes it all special is the inspiration, information, and connection through shared experiences, and importantly, tolerance and mutual kindness to connect with other people. So our message to everybody is please continue to listen to and follow the advice of your local health authorities and stay healthy so that we can all catch up later. We're looking forward to having a number of events this year. There's certainly going to be fewer than last than we have planned in the past, <laughs> hopefully more than last year, but uh, fewer than we had in 2019. But we'll be looking carefully at all of them to make sure that they are as safe as possible. And of course, dates may change at any time. So from us at HU, myself, Susan, and our assistant Grace, and all our event organizing teams all over the world, we hope you can get some great riding in, find adventures in your own backyard. Take lots of pics and plan to tell some new stories at HU events in 2021 and beyond.
we want to have more events and connect with everybody in the future. So with that said, um, we were also thinking about going forward. So for at least the first half of the year, I think planning and preparing is going to be the very best activity. Travel any distance is not going to be possible for some time. So I was talking to a traveler the other day, and in response to his lament about no travel yet, he was really bummed that, oh, I wanted, I had all kinds of things planned for this year, I can't do. But I said to him, you know, plan several trips. Get serious about planning. It doesn't have to be just a single big trip. Great if it is, that's wonderful, but it could be several smaller ones to places in your part of the world you haven't been to or love and want to do again. The main thing, as always, is to just go. Do something. Get out there and ride. So really work on getting somewhere near the perfect setup. Of course, we're never going to have the perfect setup. We all know that. But eliminate stuff you don't need so that you're not the one sending another box of expensive crap I didn't need home. We all have heard that one before, and we've all done it. So work on your riding skills, too. There's lots of videos on YouTube on how to do anything and everything on a bike. And right here on Adventure Rider Radio, Jim has loads of the best trainers in the world, like Chris Birch, Jimmy Lewis, Clinton Smoot, and many more, with some great riding technique advice. So get out and practice and improve your skills, especially those low-speed skills we too often ignore. Even myself, I spend, I've been riding for 60 years now, and every year I spend hours in a dirt parking lot doing tight circles, basic stuff, U-turns, feet up practice, stop and go and such. And that sharpens me up and gets me back into the flow, and I always find it very worthwhile. It, it makes me feel comfortable on the bike again. I, I know that I'm on top of it as best as I possibly can be. And I, always, I, I watch videos on riding techniques myself listen to Chris Birch and recently did one. Uh, all these are great stuff. So check those out and improve your riding and improve your planning and where you're going to go. Improve your gear. And of course, finally, be sure to check out the Achievable Dream video series on vimeo.com slash Horizons Unlimited to help you plan your adventure. Sorry, that was a long monologue, but there's lots to say and I hope it all makes sense to everybody. I'm glad you breathed through it. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> I tried. <laughs> no, I think that I, I wanted to get that message out to everybody about being careful, doing some planning, be happy in what you can do, and do as much as you can. Like I said, it's important to just go. Get out there, do something. Don't just wallow in self-pity because you can't do a big trip. Well, you can yeah. do a small one, and you can practice, and you can get organized. Well, I guess that wraps things up, unless somebody else has something to add in there. No going once, yeah. no nope. going twice. Yeah. Done. That's all I can say. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> that wraps this one up. Thank you very much, everyone. Michelle, I really appreciate you using your cell service for this. Thank you very much. That's very devoted of you to uh, to do that in the location you're at. Thank you, everyone. And that was great. And I guess we'll talk next month. Welcome aboard, Michelle. Oh, yeah, she's Michelle, the queen of motorcycling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Fun to be here. Good. Yeah, we always enjoy it. <laughs> Probably not uh, as much as me, but thank you. Cheers, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Cheers, everybody. 
Well, that wraps things up for this month's ARR Raw. And thank you to my co-host, Sam Manicom, starting with Sam Manicom. He lives in the UK. He's got four books and audiobooks that follow his eight-year motorcycle journey around the world. His website, sam-manicom.com. Shirley Hardy Ricks and Brian Ricks are from Australia. They also publish their own books on motorcycle travel. You can buy them wherever you get e-books at their website, aussiesoverland.com.au. And of course, Grant Johnson is from Horizons Unlimited, which is the hub, literally, for our adventure motorcycling community. Horizons Unlimited has tons of up-to-date travel information as well as a huge forum of dedicated travelers that connect you with other travelers. They also put on the hub meets around the world. You can see a worldwide list of hub meets at their website, horizonsunlimited.com. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin. My name is Jim Martin. Thank you for listening. Join us again next time. Oh, and don't forget, drop by our website. You can also look at the show notes. I have some more information here. You can make comments on the show notes. AdventureRiderRadio.com. Adventure Rider Radio.